for the food, in stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word that speaks to every area of our lives. And your word always brings light, understanding, challenge, healing, and goodness. So help us this morning as we talk about um, sexuality in our lives, in our culture, that you would be our teacher and that you would indeed bring light and and comfort, and truth, and grace. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you, and we pray that your Spirit would be our guide, and that you would apply these words to each one of our individual lives, as we need you to do. And so come and attend to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we are in our second week of a small mini summer mini series summer sex series you could say at Christ Church last week was the, uh, the first week it was our second week in first uh, Corinthians which has uh, some, some of Paul's most extensive teaching on sexuality and uh, of course there's so much to say on this topic and I think that you know for many people they think that the Bible's view of sex is largely negative it's a lot of don'ts don't do this God does not want anyone having fun or any pleasure. And, uh, and so it's a very simplistic idea that, uh, of, of what the Bible teaches. But of course, this is not true. Like every area of life, the Bible's teaching is always complex. It's nuanced. And it's, you know, it's not only religious-type people who can tend to be simplistic, where they say, don't talk about sex. Sex is just a necessary evil. That's kind of a religious way to approach sex, but there's also our culture's approach to sex is very simplistic also. It just says, you know, whatever you want to do, follow your heart, you have a desire, do it. I mean, that's an incredibly naive view of sexuality. And so the Bible has this rich and nuanced understanding um, and framework for us so that sexuality becomes deeply meaningful, symbolic, pleasurable, and healthy for us in our lives. And so it's imperative that we uh, give our minds and our, our attention to this topic. And uh, so let me just, I just want to say one thing before we jump into it. You know, some of you, you may be single here. You're not sexually active. And you say, well, you know, what, how, is this sermon going to apply to me? I, you know, hearing all these sermons about marriage and sex. And, you know, I should say, uh, just a couple months ago, I, I did a sermon on singleness. 
and there was an uh, older couple that was visiting the church, and uh, they talked to me after the service, and, you know, they're from out of town, and they said, you know, we opened the bullet, and we saw that this sermon was going to be on singleness, and we thought, well, this isn't going to apply to us, but then we were totally locked in the whole time, and there were all kinds of things that applied to us, and, you know, why is that? You know, they're not even single, and the reason is because what we do every Sunday in church is we're really talking about the gospel every week. And we're applying the gospel into the specific areas of our lives. And it's, so every week we're talking about the gospel, which applies to all of us and shapes all of our lives. And in some ways, sexuality, because it's about the gospel, is about all of life. And so it has many things to teach us. And so even if you see the topic, you say, that doesn't apply to my life, it does apply to your life. And there's something in here. So I pray that the Holy Spirit will guide each one of us into the truth of the gospel because the gospel is always relevant for all of us. Okay, so this morning, we're going to talk about the gospel and sexuality. And I want to do, do so under just these two questions, these two headings. First of all, how should we view our bodies? And second, how then should we think about sex? First, how should we view our bodies? And then, and then in light of that, how then should we uh, think about sex? And this little passage I just read has some profound answers to those questions. So, first question this morning is, how should we view our bodies? And, um, you know, I raise this question because the word body, even the topic of the body, shows up all over this passage. I counted in the Greek text eight times that it's that in just these few verses that uh, Paul talks about the body. And it's an incredibly important theme in the Bible. Because the Bible actually says that your body is made in the image of God. So you are living flesh and blood, breathing, playing, creating, cooking, singing, writing, bike riding, whatever, picture of what God is like. And you're walking around. That's a profound thing. That's what your body is. It's showing physically what the invisible God is like. That's what, you, that's what it means to be human. And so there's a couple important things that this passage says about our bodies. And the first thing is this, is that our bodies are not our own. This is a great truth. There's so much hope in the truth that my body is not my own. And, you know, this passage I just read, it begins with a kind of dialogue. It's called a, a diatribe, where uh, what's happened in this passage is the Corinthian church that Paul is writing to has already written Paul a letter with a number of questions. And so you'll notice, um, and what Paul is doing is he's quoting their letter, or he's also heard about some of the things they believe, and he's quoting the Corinthian church and then answering some of the things they believe. So that you can see in this passage those quotes where it says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. So that's the Corinthians talking. They wrote that in their letter. All things are lawful for us. And then Paul answers and he says, but not all things are helpful. And they say, but all things are lawful for me. And then he answers and he says, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And then they say, food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach meant for food. And then he answers and says, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now what Paul is addressing in this passage, is that the Corinthian church was planted by Paul. He spent a year and a half there. If you read in Acts 18, you can read about Paul going there, and he started this congregation. So he's, he's their spiritual father. And one of the things that we know about Paul's teaching is that he said that the whole creation, all things in the earth, were created good by God. You know, food, um, laughter, you know, recreation, sex, all these things were made by God good. And actually, there's a place in 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. If you're looking for a, a, a verse to memorize, this is a great verse to memorize. Everything created by God is good. 
And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. He says, everything created by God is good, and not, you shouldn't be rejecting things. And so they said, everything created by good, we can just enjoy whatever we want. And so they took this as um, to mean that they could indulge themselves in whatever they wanted. And that they understood that to mean that they were made for pleasures. That's why I exist, is to enjoy pleasures. And he says, not so fast. And this is what it says, verse 13, the second half of verse 13 there, look what it says. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. What Paul says is that our bodies are not our own, but they belong to the Lord Jesus, and so that what life is about is not about pleasing my body, but about pleasing Him. It's a profound thing. Do you view your body that way? My body was made to for pleasing the Lord, for serving Him. And, um, but, you know, actually, as I was studying this passage, uh, it, it doesn't just say that our bodies are for the Lord, but it also has that weird statement there where it also says that the Lord is for the body. And I was puzzling over that this week because I said, well, okay, I understand that my body was made for the Lord. I'm supposed to serve Him. I'm supposed to live for God's glory. But then to say that the Lord, the Lord's body is, is for my body or the Lord is for my body, what does that mean? And I think... Um, that uh, the answer is found at the end of this passage. Look down at verse 19, what he says. Paul says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. The Lord's body was for my body. His body, Jesus died on the cross to purchase my body. And so he gave, it's not just about me giving my body for him, but he gave his body for me. And, you know, for many of us, that's an important point because for many of you, when you hear you think, it's a, the Bible saying, oh, the, my body is not my own. It belongs to the Lord. It's for his service. I'm supposed to obey him and glorify him in my body. You hear that as God wants to get control of my life. He doesn't want me to enjoy anything and he wants to keep me down. That's not it at all. He gave his body to you first so that you might offer your body back to him. It is this exchange, this mutual offering of bodies to one another. Now, some of you might say, you know, that sounds kind of sexual, giving bodies to each other, you know, with the Lord. And, you know, I have to say, uh, look at verse 15. I think Paul is talking that way. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? But then he goes on, uh, um, I'm sorry, I lost this. Uh, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So he uses the same language of what happens with a prostitute, joined, to talk about our relationship to the Lord of being joined. And um, what he is saying is that the union of sex is incredibly profound, but is a pointer to tell us about a deeper union, the ultimate union that happens between us and God himself, and that sex is a picture of. There is a deeper transcendence, deeper intimacy, deeper pleasure in that union. And that this is the starting point 
to understand what our bodies are for. You know, it's very similar to when you get married. You know, when you get married, but, you know, when you're a single person, you have all kinds of freedom. Many of you experience this when you get married, and there's quite an adjustment when you get married to say, I just can't go do whatever, I mean, and I don't mean sexually, I mean with anything. I can't go do anything with my body I want. I can't go have recreation or do the things that I wanted or the hobbies that I want to do. I'm always kind of checking in with my spouse and keeping our schedules together because our bodies are now tied together. And what he's saying is we have that same kind of thing where the Lord's body is given to us and our body is given to the Lord. So that's the first thing we have to understand about our bodies. Do you, do you understand, do you view your body that way? That it's not mine, it's his. Well, there's a second thing that we learn about our bodies in this passage. Not only that our bodies are not our own, but also that our bodies will be resurrected. This is one of my favorite themes in the whole Bible, is that our bodies will be resurrected. This is really what the Bible teaches. Um, it's one of my favorite uh, truths, and it's one of the great body-affirming truths of the Bible that says that bodies are good things. And you see that there in verse 14. Paul says this, do you not know that God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power? And, you know, I should just note, there's a little, nice little Trinitarian formula there. When Paul talks about God, he's usually talking about the Father. So it says, the, God the Father raised the Lord, who is Jesus, and will also raise us up by his power, and his power is the Holy Spirit. So it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doing this whole act of raising Jesus from the dead. And what Paul is saying here is that the basic gospel message, if you, if you, if you don't know the gospel message, this is, this is the basic thing of, of what in the New Testament they call good news, was that Jesus was God become a man, and he died on the cross for our sins. And then on the third day, Christians, early Christians insisted upon this, that Jesus' soul did not rise. It was not that he was a spirit. It was not that Jesus was showing us that, you know, after your body dies, there's a hope beyond the grave. That's not what happened on Easter. In the gospel, it says that Jesus' body was raised from the dead. You know, he's walking around with his disciples. He says, why don't you touch my hands and give me some fish? And we're going to, he has a little barbecue on the beach with his disciples. They eat fish together. And you realize this is a physical existence, that his body has been raised to an indestructible life. And that what happened to Jesus' body when it was raised to the dead, it was made whole again. It was, it was just beautiful and radiant and indestructible. And living for God's glory was a picture of what God was going to do with all things. With all things, God was going to... And, and for those who are in Jesus, he's going to do the same thing for us. And so these bodies that are all weak and they get old and they get sick are going to die in the ground. God is going to raise our bodies and we're going to live in God's good green earth for endless ages in his presence, enjoying all the pleasures of all good things, but of, uh, most of all, enjoying him, knowing him, being loved by him, being intimate with him, being close to him. And this is, if you think that's mind-blowing, bodies being raised from, the down, uh, raised from the dead to live for and ever and ever, if you think that's fantastic, it is. <laughs> it is fantastic. And you have to ask yourself, if there really is a good, all-powerful, loving God in heaven who created all things, could he give us anything less? Is he just going to scrap our bodies? Is he just going to scrap this creation? No, he's going to renew it. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you have a share in that new world that he is bringing. And so what this says to us um, is that, again, sex is a pointer of the deep realities of the universe. 
Because when Jesus comes again to raise our bodies and make all things new, it says that he's going to bring heaven with him. You know, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's picturing this union of heaven and earth coming together. And in the end of the Bible, it says that the new Jerusalem was this city in heaven that was coming down to earth, and God's dwelling place was with man. And the whole picture is this marriage of heaven and earth that are these two separate places are now becoming one place. They're being unified. And all of a sudden, what we do, you know, you, this act that we do where two people, a man and a woman, come together and make love to each other, it is this enactment, it is this foreshadowing, it is a picture of the deep reality of the whole universe. Profound. And the fact that Jesus says, our, the Bible says that our bodies are going to be raised, says that, the, that God thinks our bodies are good things. Pleasures are good things. You know, pleasures were invented by God. Do you know that the devil did not invent one pleasure? There, he only takes God's pleasures and twists them. All pleasures were invented by God. He has a, the devil hasn't figured out, C.S. Lewis says, the devil hasn't figured out how to make a pleasure yet. Because it's not good enough. You have to be good to make pleasures. And this was a very different thing. In the, early, in the early church, many Christians were affected by Greek ideas of the body, which were very different than the resurrection. The Greek ideas of the body said that our bodies were these prisons that were full of these evil pleasures, and our soul was pure and good. And so we needed to get our soul free from our bodies. It was like this cage. And so we die, and so our bodies didn't really matter. The Bible says something very different. The Bible says that our bodies and souls are made in the image of God good, but both our bodies and our souls are both corrupted by sin. And so when we are renewed and have new life in Jesus, it is not just the redemption of our souls, but the redemption of our bodies as well. And so here you have these two things that guide how we should think about our bodies. Is on the one hand, our bodies are not our own. We can't do whatever we want with them because they belong to another. And let me just tell you, that's one of the deep longings of your soul, for your body to belong to someone else. And whether you're married or single, Jesus says you can have that longing satisfied in him that your body would belong to him. It would be cherished by him and loved and, um, and, and desired and known by him. So, on the one hand, there's this great loss of freedom. But alongside of that, the Bible also says that our bodies are good and that God made all pleasures. And it's these two understandings of, of the body that guide how we enter into thinking about sex, is that our bodies are not our own, but God is the God of bodies and pleasure. Okay? And so, having that background, we can move to answer the next question, which, says that, which is this. How, then, should we think about sex? And let me just... Um, highlight a few ways that Paul answers that question in this passage. The first is, I think that Paul understands that we should see sex as a gift. And you see that uh, here in, in the second half of verse 16, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, and he says, the two will become one flesh. And what Paul's doing, you know, whenever a biblical author quotes um, another part of the Bible, 
what they want you to do is not just think of that one verse. They want you to think of all the chapters surrounding that verse, the whole story that's being told. And it's like he's telling you the whole story of the beginning of the Bible just with that one verse. And so when you read that, you're supposed to go back into this world where God is creating all good things and he's creating our bodies. And, it's, and God says it was not good for man to be alone. And so he made this woman to be with her. And they were, they were naked and they were unashamed. And he brought them and, he, and gave the woman to the man and they became one flesh. And we're supposed to have this whole picture of sexuality being a gift from God that he wants us to enjoy and that he is blessing us with. And if sex is a gift, that means that the key to it is thanksgiving. You receive gifts with thanksgiving. Thanking God. Gratitude. It should be received by us with deep humility and wonder and amazement. Now, um, we tend to think that our culture is overly fascinated with sex. And, and of course, in some ways, that's true. But, you know, um, back in the 70s, when pornography was uh, just beginning to, to really spread in our culture, many conservative people said, you know, we need to get a check on this pornography because if men start looking at all this pornography, they are going to get overstimulated by sex and they're just going to be sex crazed. And it turns out now, as we're a generation later, almost the opposite has happened. Certainly, all kinds of people are addicted to pornography and addicted to sex. But what's happened is because they've had, they've just, they've just taken it without receiving it as a gift from God, they've just gone out and pursued it in all the ways that, we've, that our, our flesh is desired. Men actually have a hard time being stimulated by sex because they've been oversexed by pornography. And it has not overstimulated them, it's actually numbed them. And so, you know, that many men who are, have, have been addicted to pornography find that they can't even be stimulated by their wives anymore. And they need strange, bizarre, dark, kinds of sex to even get them uh, to have any sense of feeling or any sense of stimulation. And the exact opposite has happened. And so we are not thrilled with sex. We're not filled with wonder at sex. We are now bored with it. And uh, G.K. Chesterton, who his great book, Orthodoxy, uh, has a chapter called The Ethics of Elfland, where he talks about essential to being human is having a sense of wonder that we're living almost in this fairy tale world that is so strange. And he says, you know, fairy tales are beautiful and enchanting and they always have strange rules that you just have to follow or, or, or things go wrong in the fairy tale, right? Like, so Cinderella gets to go to the ball, but she has to be back by midnight. Why? Why do you have to be back at midnight? I don't know, but she never says, wait, why midnight? Why not two o'clock? She just doesn't say it. She's like, you're a fairy godmother. I mean... Who am I to say that I could stay out till two, right? She just has to be back at midnight. And, and, and G.K. Chesterton says that our world is like that. It's enchanting and wonderful and beautiful and filled with all kinds of gifts, and yet it has these small rules that you have to follow if you're going to understand the elf land or the, or the fairy tale. And he says this is especially true about sex. Let me read, let me read to you uh, one little quote from him. This is what he says. I could never mix in the common murmur of that rising generation against monogamy 
because no restriction on sex seemed so odd and unexpected as sex itself. When you are amazed that sex even exists, you don't complain that God makes a rule that you can only have sex with one woman. You're so humbled and so grateful that you could, and this is what he says, keeping to one woman is a small price for so much as seeing one woman. To complain that I could only be married once was like complaining that I had only been born once. It was incommensurate with the terrible excitement of which one was talking. It showed not an exaggerated sensibility to sex, but a curious insensibility to it. We're not fascinated with sex. We're bored and ungrateful for it. And the Bible's vision recaptures this childlike wonder at what God gives to us. And, um, and you know, our culture thinks that Christians have all kinds of rules about sex. And, you know, in, in that sense, the Christians are kind of anti-sex. The reality is the Christians have one rule. They're, the Bible has really one rule. I mean, it's like you have to be home at midnight in the fairy tale. It's just this one simple rule. And this is the second thing that, that Paul teaches us about sex in this passage. Not only that, that sex is a gift, but second, that sex is covenantal. And what I mean by that is um, a covenant is a relationship between two people, a relationship of love and devotion that is built on a promise. And that's what a marriage is. It's a covenant relationship. And the Bible says that our relationship to God is also covenantal. He makes promises to us. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he binds himself to us with a promise. And, and the Bible says that sex is, has to happen within the context of a marriage covenant. And, um, and you can see this, of course, in verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So Paul uses this language of when you enter into a sexual relationship with someone, you are joined to them at a profound level. And um, this language of joining is covenantal language. It's holding fast the way the Bible talks about it. It's clinging, two people clinging to one another. And... Um, and so what happens is the sexual relationship is a reenactment of the wedding day, of the binding together of two people. That's what sex does. And, you know, I'll talk about this in more detail next week. But uh, the frightening truth is that often what is happening in our marriage beds is a mirror of what's happening in our marriages. And um, how close and trusting are you in your marriage? Do you talk about sex? Is that conversation off limits? How much can you open your hearts and your desires and your fears to one another? Is uh, your sex life growing and changing for those of you who are married? Because the Bible says that sex is about nakedness. It's about saying to someone, no part of me is hidden from you. My fears, my desires, my love. It's not just that your bodies are naked, but your souls being naked with one another. That's what this is about. 
And this kind of transparency only can happen in a relationship that is secure, where two people have vowed to one another, I'm never going to leave you. I mean, who do we trust with that kind of intimacy? And, uh, you know, I, I, um, I, I was just talking to two different people uh, uh, this week who had said to me, uh, actually one was my son and one was a, a single person, who both said to me, the most important thing about the person I marry is just to know that they're not going to leave. I just need to know that they're not going to leave. And then I can push through anything, any hard thing, but this needs to be the thing that binds and seals us uh, together. I'll just tell you, there is nothing, this is another thing from G.K. Chesterton, there is nothing more romantic in the world than marriage. I mean, it's so reckless. I'm going to promise my whole life to this person? I, you know, I, I've only maybe known them a year or two, and I'm going to say, I'm going to be with you no matter what, and this irrevocable promise, and how beautiful, how thrilling, how risky, how wonderful. And what the Bible says is this gift of sexuality you can't have unless you've taken that great plunge. And when you take that great plunge, this, this is God's gift to you. It is so beautiful. Um, I'm getting lost. I'm getting excited talking about this. Okay. Uh, now, I should, uh, now, our culture wants the safer route. Our culture does not want to take the plunge, the risk, the irrevocable vow. And so we say, you know, I need to get to know someone. Of course I need to sleep with them. Of course I need to live with them before, you know, how do I know whether I want to stay my whole life with them? And the, tr the truth is that there's no one who is perfect enough to marry. We all become the, the spouse that God intends us to be. And, um, but what happens is that when sex is taken out of, outside of the covenant of marriage, there isn't real transparency. There's always the question, will this person leave? And what happens is when there's this question that, will this person leave, sex becomes selfish. It's not about union. It's not about being joined to another person. It's about taking pleasure from someone. And it becomes corrupted because sex was a gift. And so your act of sex should be an, an act of giving. And instead it becomes an act of taking. And then it becomes destructive. And this is the third thing that Paul teaches us about sex. Not only that sex is a gift and that sex is covenantal, but the third thing is that sex is fragile. And this is, of course, why Paul gives us such warnings about it. He says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And what Paul is saying here is that, you know, other kinds of sins like lying, stealing, you know, they hurt the other person. But sexual sins, he says, have a lasting effect on you unlike other kinds of experiences and sins. Some of you know that. If you have a, a, a broken sexual history, or um, sexual experiences that, that are dark outside of God's, God's revealed will in the scriptures, and you've known the deep, permanent, seemingly permanent effects that they've had on you. And what Paul says here is do not take sex lightly. It is a fragile, beautiful thing that must be received with gratitude and humility. 
And that's why he says, flee from sexual morality, which I should say is uh, certainly a warning to all of us. Sexual immorality is not something to flirt with. You know, if you're a married person and you sense chemistry with someone else that you're working with, do not flirt with that. It will get you and it will destroy your life. Do not think, I can manage a little bit of this. I can handle a little bit of this. No, you can't. You know, the great example of that in the scriptures is King David, the man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, who wrote half the Psalms and major moral failing. And actually, in our denomination, just sadly, we've just had a, a well-known pastor who just had a moral failing within the last month and, and, and had an affair, and his wife had an affair, and it's just a broken mess. And we just need... The, one of the things the Bible says to us is sexuality is fragile, so run away from any possible sin. And, you know, one of the things, I know that for some of you, you say, you know, it's not that easy to just run away from it. And, uh, you know, last year I was reading the Screwtape Letters, uh, C.S. Lewis' book about temptation. And one of the things he says in the Screwtape Letters is that the best thing to know about sexual temptation is that it will go away. We think, you know, temptation is a form of suffering. And when you feel urges, you're like, the only way the urge is going to go away is if I give in. No, it won't. You just have to wait. It will go away. And, and, and it's the lie that the only way that this suffering will go away is if I indulge, is the lie. God will deliver you. And so we wait, and we flee, and, uh, and we avoid it. And let me just say that for some of you, I know many of you, and all of us to varying degrees, have painful sexual histories. And um, one of the great hopes of the, of the gospel is what we talked about in the first half of the sermon about our bodies. That the Bible talks so much about our bodies um, that Jesus buys your body with his own blood. Our bodies, which were the place, the location of dark events that have happened in our life, our bodies that we often feel so uncomfortable with, so unsure about, often so ashamed of, Jesus desires and purchases and wants. This is a profound truth. And so, so much, if you say, you know, I know that sex is fragile, and it is, and I've been broken because of how fragile it is. There's this great, uh, I shared this a few months ago, St. Augustine has this uh, great image where he says, how could we ever contain God? You know, this passage says that we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. How could I ever contain God in my body? My body's a temple. Why don't I just explode? I mean, God is so powerful and big. And, 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 and what Augustine says, you know what? It's not like we're a jar that contains God. It's like we're a shattered jar that God pours himself on and gathers all the pieces together and makes whole again so that we can contain him. And that now we can become like him and offer our bodies back to him as he offered his body to us. And this healing, when it enters into a sexual relationship, reshapes it in this last thing that we learn about sex in this passage, and which says that sex becomes sacrifice. What is sex? Sex is about sacrifice. And you know, this passage ends by saying, so glorify God in your body. How is God glorified in your body? 
Well, how was God glorified in Jesus' body? It was by him dying on the cross, by him giving his body for others. And um, what this tells us is that sex is ultimately about service. It's about giving our bodies for the joy of another. And of course, this is another one of the great lies of pornography in our culture. Because pornography especially tells a man that you can walk into a room and be wanted, be attacked, and without being a servant without laying down your life for someone else. And it's all about taking pleasure. It's about others serving you instead of about, of about serving others. And this is a complete reversal of what the gospel is about. When our lives are shaped by the gospel, when we realize that my body was bought by the great bridegroom Jesus, sexuality is totally transformed. And... When this is the shape of your marriage and your life in the bed, that sex is about sacrifice, about service, you find out that there is deeper pleasure in giving pleasure than in taking it. And so when the gospel becomes...